And welcome to episode 23 of the Graph Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Fairholm. This is the end of season one for our podcast, and we are celebrating today with a holiday medley episode featuring some of our favorite moments from the season. And we figured this is a good moment to stop and reflect, given that we've seen our audience grow over the last year. And also for those who are new to the podcast, this is actually a perfect introduction to what we are all about here, because you will hear a handful of snippets from different episodes and really get a feel for what type of conversations we have, which includes a lot of talk about how we are launching a smart golf ball and analytics platform, but also includes a lot of talk about the game itself and reimagining what golf can look like. Before we get into those best of moments for season one, I want to introduce a colleague of mine at Graph to help reflect on this year of the podcast and some of our favorite moments. You'll recognize him from episode 12 of the pod. He is the chief design officer of Graph and the man behind our marketing efforts, Rowan Fraser. Rowan, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me again. Uh, yeah, excited to kind of recap the uh, season one. I wanted to open this up talking about the podcast in general. On my end, it has been so much fun to produce these episodes. I've had an absolute blast doing it. But from your end, you know, listening to these episodes and also being a part of one, the importance of the podcast and just in terms of uh, what the podcast has provided us here at Graph, what, what are some of your thoughts? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I think it's fair to say that uh, when we started thinking about doing this, we really had no expectations and very limited ideas for what it could be. We just knew that we knew what graph was and what we were trying to do. And um, as long as whatever we did with the pod stayed in line with that, you know, we, we sort of were happy to try, uh, you know, interviewing different people, having different people try their hand at it. Of course, like many other things, we thought, you know, high failure rate, but if it works out, hey, why not? And I think uh, we kind of lucked out in finding you. Uh, I believe I believe Aaron found you initially, um, started corresponding with you. And then, yeah, I think once the ball got rolling, we kind of thought, well, this is actually maybe something like we kind of have a little like something to hang our hat on here. And of course the, the growth out of the gate wasn't monumental, but we have had some jumps uh, over this past season, if, if we're calling it that. And um, I think that now the growth is very steady and encouraging. So it, it long story short, it worked out probably a lot better than we thought it might. So we're, you know, this is episode 23, this medley episode. We're, so the, the 22 episodes prior to that, we've had a lot of really fun moments. I think, you know, my favorite moments of this season have, have been the behind the ball episodes featuring, you know, some of the employees of Graph. I think those have just, you know, our audience has really gravitated towards those. And I've really enjoyed kind of learning more of the backstory of Graph, um, you know, just getting to, to know all of you guys a lot better. Uh, you know, the behind the ball series, I think that's kind of the, to me, that's like the core of, of the podcast, right? It's just, it's getting to know all these different employees of graph and getting to know their backstory. And I think of someone like Parker hearing about him go through the air force and Tesla, I mean, that that's really kind of the, the cool part of the podcast to me. Completely agree. And I, I think, I think we all, that was honestly the first idea we had with the podcast 
that I think we all felt pretty confident would do well uh, out of the gate. Um, Cause there were definitely some, you know, uh, trial and error type of uh, forays that, that we did with the club, generally speaking. But um, yeah, I think there's definitely a, as, as we have kind of like a unique vision for the company, there's also a sort of common thread that's, that weaves through all the people that work here. And it's kind of interesting. Um, Parker is definitely right in there. You know, he might kind of epitomize uh, who we are, how we work, what we stand for. I mean, it's just kind of a, it's a startup. It's a bit of an always on mentality and it's, it's, you know, people get into it. And if, if you are into it, if, you know, it's quite fun uh, and scrappy that way. And I think that's why that um, series caught the most traction for the pod, because I think beyond golf, uh, people are interested in those kinds of things. I think everyone's got, you know, ideas, obviously, and a percentage of those people have business ideas and a percentage of those people have probably thought about starting a company at some point. And of course, you know, it's not easy, like nothing, nothing really is uh, when it comes to business and there's a lot of competition and there's technological <laughs> uh, hurdles to overcome. And I think behind the ball gives people a, a peek into that side of the company. And it's a little, there's a little bit of uh, trepidation there. There's, you know, we can't literally share everything uh, for proprietary reasons, but we're able to share quite a bit. And, and I think that's, uh, even if it's just backgrounds on people that work at Graph now, that's interesting from the standpoint of the fact that we were four just, you know, just a couple of years ago. And, and, and a year prior to that, there was three. Um, and so it, just the fact that there are people that work here now and, 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 you know, getting their backgrounds, I think alone is interesting. Um, and then what they're specifically working on and how it factors into what we're building, I, I think, all the more interesting. Here's a snippet from episode 18 of the podcast with Parker Feldman, the VP of Manufacturing at Graph, as he describes his circuitous route to the company. What is your expertise in and what were some of the experiences you had coming into what I'm guessing is a pretty different environment from uh, where you were before? Yeah. So experience-wise, um, in the past, I, I kind of grew up, I was always interested in manufacturing, even as a child, <laughs> I would always watch uh, um, How It's Made. That was kind of like my go-to show, um, even in like middle school and high school. And then uh, going out of high school, it was one of those situations, I've, I have two older sisters and one was in the military and the other one was going to college. And the one at college was still wearing the same clothes from high school and driving the same car and working two jobs and just struggling. And then one in the military was traveling the world and just like doing all these really awesome things and coming home with new cars. And, you know, as a kid in high school, I'm like, I'm, I'm doing that. That seems really awesome. <laughs> um, so I, I joined the Air Force and the Air Force was phenomenal for kind of building the foundation of where I'm at today. It was a lot of attention to detail. Um, I was an electronics technician, so I did a lot of troubleshooting. Um, and then that lasted for about seven years and decided, you know what, it's time to get my degree. And I really wanted to do engineering. Um, and I kind of fell into Arizona State University. They had a, a full hands-on program and uh, it covered things from CNC machining to casting. Um, they did PLC coding and all of it dealt with 
you know, you actually had to do the project, um, which was really big for me. And it, it kind of, I wanted to have that to set me up career-wise. Um, and I had started my own business, um, but as it came to be towards the end of uh, my degree, I got contacted by Tesla. So I did an internship in Fremont working on their Model S line and just helping them continuously ramp production there. Um, I finished my degree and got a full-time job at the Gigafactory, and that was just kind of a decision between me and my wife of, uh, hey, we can either live in California um, and live in a house with, you know, four or five other couples and still pay a, a fairly high rent, or we can move to Reno um, and help them start the Gigafactory. So when I came on board, I was the first equipment engineer. Um, they were still pouring concrete. Um, There's no machines. There was a lot of time being spent over in Japan and Germany and South Korea and, like, vetting the equipment that was going to be uh, brought on board and the plan was to ramp production as quickly as possible for the model three uh, building specifically the drive units and uh, that was a solid four years for me of taking uh, basically nothing and turning it into you know one week it was taking us two weeks to make one unit and then by the end of the first year uh, we were doing you know thousands of units per day um, and then that slowly ramped in um, I started helping other manufacturing lines and got promoted and um, just kept falling in love with it. And then, you know, my wife got pregnant and I'm I'm in a situation where <laughs> I'm working, you know, 12 to 14 hour days and getting phone calls at 3 a.m. And um, I was like, I'm not going to be a good father. So I, I kind of moved into a position at Hamilton Company. Um, they were phenomenal. It was a completely different situation. I was moving from, you know, 85 to 95% fully automated manufacturing lines to working with, um, you know, production workers who were assembling robotics by hand. Um, and in the beginning, it was super easy. Um, it was super awesome. I got to get super detail oriented into the process and take my time. Um, but as it stands, you know, I, I started that position in January of 2020 and three months later, um, COVID took off and Hamilton Robotics, they make, vaccine testing uh, robotics and it does blood work and it'll do COVID testing. It does a lot of other things. So as you can imagine, like sales just took off um, and that turned into, okay, we need to ramp production by a thousand percent. And again, it was a completely different situation because it wasn't working with automated equipment. It was working with individuals, completely different um, mindset. And it was a completely different uh, educational situation for me. It was really awesome. Um, and then after about a, a year and a half of working there, uh, I had the conversation with Aaron for Graph Golf. It was the first time in a long time that I kind of was like, okay, I can I can work from home. Um, what you guys are doing, I had to do a lot of research into. Uh, you know, I had to figure out, okay, what is this exactly going to look like, and you know, is this a possibility? Can they get this to work? And the thing that made me most interested in Graph Golf was the fact that. The smart golf ball just intuitively made sense to me, like data wise and all the things you can do with a smart golf ball. I could see it kind of opening up a lot of doors for the golf industry. But after doing research, I realized like, well, there's no smart golf balls yet. There's a lot of companies who have tried it, but it's not here. And, and that question of like why really gripped me when it came to making the consideration to, to kind of come on to graph. Um, along with all the other benefits of like working with the entire team, all of you guys, including you, Sean, have been like super stoked and excited about, you know, just the game of golf 
and super excited about and working super hard to get this to you know become a reality. Um, that's what like really locked me into joining Graph Golf. Because um, two biggest things is like, what are you trying to do and how hard is it? That got me interested. And then the team itself. And I did have to mention, I went back through the episodes and I believe yours was the longest out of all of the episodes. So I think that does say something about, uh, we, we, have, we have some chemistry here with, uh, with talking about golf. I think we went on a little bit longer than we thought we would when we recorded that episode, but that, that was a lot of fun. How about, how about some other uh, moments throughout the season that you really enjoyed? I like the Bryson DeChambeau episode because he's such a, a fascinating character, but there are was, there was some other kind of golf-centric ones where we're kind of being fans of the game, which I think is an important thing for any golf company to remain you know, passionate and to remain fans of the game. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm not surprised. Uh, mine ran the longest. Uh, I definitely am the loudest and longest winded, uh, at this company, probably by a long shot. I don't think anybody would disagree with you. Um, no, I, there, there's uh, the, the Bryson episode was great. Um, the, the, the rapport that, uh, you guys have in the discussion and, the statistics and where to stop analyzing and Bryson's just added so many nice things, annoying things, competitive things, athletic things to the game that it, it, he's spawned probably dozens and dozens of podcast episodes. So that one, you know, the one that sticks out to me actually is the, is the, the Rory uh, episode, because I think, um, it flew under the radar a little bit because Rory, I guess, to some people is maybe kind of old news. Bryson kind of represents, or maybe Morikawa, the new guard, and let's see what those guys are up to. Rory had his day in the sun. I don't really know, but I think that the take, if you want to call it a hot take, I, did, I thought it was a, a pretty even-keeled take, but if you want to call it a hot take, saying that Rory plays better in uh, regular events than he does in majors. The idea there is that that is kind of what we're doing at Graph. We're looking at the number, like we're, we're allowing people to see the numbers for the first time in many ways. And I think when you think about somebody like Rory, um, it's easy to think, well, one of the best drivers of the golf ball, um, won majors uh, before, you know, he's had some incredible tournaments, some incredible showings. But the, th the reality is um, people, you know, they know very limited statistics about what players do numbers wise uh, when they're watching it on television. You're seeing their, their numbers off the tee box. And again, with TrackMan off the tee box, Rory is one of the most impressive players. Um, no argument there. But the reality is when you start to really dig, um, his performance drops significantly, particularly in short game. Um, when he's playing in majors and, and it's gotten worse over the years. And I think this is sort of the new trend in golf now. And, and Bryson's appropriate for this convo as well. Um, some people are seeing numbers for the first time, their own numbers, num more finite numbers of pros that they hadn't had access to before. This whole thing we're doing here at graph is about access to analytics. And, and that goes with how you see the game of golf being played at the professional and amateur level. And that goes to how you see it being played in your backyard and how your game is developing. So it all kind of ties together. And I think that the Rory episode uh, kind of epitomized that nicely. Here's a snippet from our episode on Rory McIlroy as my guest Jeremy Schilling and I go through a few theories on why Rory has struggled recently in majors. 
this one I I want to delve into a little bit deeper before I uh, before I let you respond to this one. So my second reason why Rory has kind of struggled in majors goes along a little bit with the first one, and that is this his his advantage off the tee, which I think we can all agree he is one of the greatest drivers of the ball of all time. Probably I would put him probably in the top ten, top fifteen easily in that category. I think that advantage has shrunk a little bit over time um, for a couple of reasons. I think one is improving technology and another, the uh, another player is just taking fitness probably as seriously as he did early on, early on in his career. I, I think if you look at 2014, Rory was number one in strokes gained off the tee. And in that year, every round he played, he was gaining almost a, a shot and a half against the field just because of how great of a driver he was and, and still is. And the closest player to him at that time was was Bubba Watson, who was about a full ha- half a shot behind him. And if you fast forward to this season, you know, Rory is, has remained a, a great driver of the golf ball, and he's hitting it further off the tee now than he did in 2014. He, he's averaging 318 yards off the tee now, and in 2014, he was down at 310, and he's, he's definitely longer, as is everybody. But... Um, you know, he, he ranks 10th in strokes gained off the tee now, and he, he's only gaining a little over a half a shot every round instead of a shot and a half. And to me, that's that's an extra four shots a tournament against his competition. And I don't know, to, to me, it, it seems like that puts a little bit more onus on on some of the other parts of his game where he doesn't really have as great of an advantage. Uh, you know, he, he hasn't putted tremendously throughout his career. He did rank 24th in strokes game putting in 2019 he was 41st uh in that category in 2014 which is really his his two best putting years but otherwise he's been pretty much below average so to me it seems like the the driver is clearly an important club for him and I think that that you know margin that he really capitalized on earlier in his career it's still there it's just not it's just not the same the same dominance off the tee that we've seen uh, relative to other players uh, compared to, compared to now. What what are, your, what are your thoughts on that one? Let me flip this question around because I I think this is a, a a really interesting topic, which is if we remove Bryson for a second, because Bryson's in a category all off to his own, right? And you look at Brooks Kepka. He made waves for this, but I but you see more and more guys endorsing this theory that Brooks has that when you have a major, you've only got in some of these fields what thirty five players that uh, that actually believe they can win. A lot of yeah, a lot of amateurs, a lot of other players in the field who really aren't going to contend in the in the tournament. Yeah, you've got you know at Augusta some international players and some amateurs who are not going to win in their first time. The PGA is all the club pros. Nothing against them. I love PGA professionals, but they're not going to win. U.S. Open has you know people from all over the place. The Open Championship, same deal. You look at top ten in the world right now. DJ is long. JT is long. Rom's long. Morikawa is basic. You know, he can poke it if he has to, but it's it's nominal distance. Bryson's in a different league. Xander's, you know, just a ball striking machine, not super long. Cantley's not super long. Kepka can move it for a mile. Reed can move it when he has to. And then you go further down and you get to Rory at, at 10. You get to uh, Finau at 14. There is, I, I think, more bombers 
in the category of people that can win these majors. Not, not so the strokes gain numbers, yes, but the strokes gain numbers, everybody, that includes Luke List. I'm not sure, nothing against Luke List, that you and I believe that his first win is going to come in a major. So I think it's, it's course setup, venue setup that may be negating his advantage more than the competition he's facing in those majors because the gap that he's got to overcome, yes, it's longer hitters, but that is that would be strokes gain compared to to his direct competition. That stat overall includes, you know, people who are not going to be taking the trophy. We're going to roll right into a couple more clips here. The first is from our analytics crash course, explaining a few key metrics, including ball speed, launch angle, and spin. Okay, the next stop for smart golf ball analytics is ball speed. Ball speed is the measurement of the golf ball's velocity just after impact, and it's the main component in generating distance. It's also the main piece in the formula to figure out your carry yardage. Ball speed is different than club head speed. They often get confused, but club head speed is how fast the club is traveling when it reaches the ball, and ball speed is measured just after impact. Think of it like this. Club head speed is how fast you swing the club, and ball speed is the energy actually being transferred to the ball. The closer to the center of the face you are hitting a golf ball, the higher your ball speed will be. Ball speed is more a measure of solidness of contact, whereas club head speed is just pure strength. For every mile per hour of ball speed, that is about two yards worth of distance. So increasing your ball speed is important and being consistent with your ball speed is important as well. So let's say you've hit some shots, you're seeing your ball speed and you want to know how it compares to other people and what it means for your game. It's very natural. We all want to increase our ball speed and have more distance. Here are some benchmarks. Not to compare yourself to a professional player, but just so you know, with a driver, a PGA Tour player averages 168 miles per hour. A scratch male amateur is closer to 160 miles per hour. A male five handicap is around 147 miles per hour. A 10 handicap would be around 138 miles per hour. A 15 handicap is around 133 miles per hour and a 20 handicap is around 130 miles per hour. Those were all men's averages. The average woman's player is around 111 miles per hour with a driver, and better players around five a handicap or so are closer to 125 miles per hour. A scratch female player is right around 132 miles per hour or so. So this is just with the driver, but it's a pretty good indication of distance off the tee and where, where you will fall for the rest of your clubs in terms of ball speed. Being below average is not necessarily a bad thing, but the data we have shows that better players usually have higher ball speeds. Something that is good to shoot for, especially with your irons, is that you want each shot to be within, I would say, 5 miles per hour of each other is a really good goal. If you can accomplish that, it's really an indication of consistency and predictability, so keep that in mind when you're seeing the data of each shot. The ball speed with each iron, I know everyone wants to have a, a number in their mind. H here's an example from my own game that you can look at. I went to the range earlier today, 
hit a handful of eight irons and a handful of three irons, kind of at the the bottom and the lower end of that that iron spectrum. My eight iron average distance was 153 yards, and the average ball speed was 109 miles per hour. The three iron average distance was 187 yards, and the average ball speed was 127 miles per hour. So 109 miles per hour versus 127 between the the three iron and the eight iron, not a massive difference. You could see that the the ball speed does go down the shorter the club, especially as you get into the wedges, it goes down quite a bit, but there isn't a ton of separation between ball speeds in irons. What you're looking for is repeatability, trying to hit the same number over and over again. So ball speed is the energy transferred to the ball But there are two other very important factors that impact the trajectory of your shot, how far it goes, and what it's going to do when it lands. Those two factors are launch angle and spin. Let's cover launch angle first. Launch angle is the initial ascent of the ball immediately after impact, measured in degrees relative to the ground, or if the ball is on a tee, the horizon of where the ball is. Picture a plane taking off, right? It has to lift at an angle to get into the air and go towards its intended destination. If it lifts too low, even if it's pointed in the right direction, it won't clear objects like like trees or buildings. And if it lifts too high, it won't be going forward enough to reach its destination either. In golf, launch angle is describing that lift. Too low and the ball may not get airborne enough to go its intended distance, or it won't stop very quickly when it lands. Too high, and it's likely going to come up short of where you want to hit it. To put it simply, launch angle issues are loss of distance issues almost every time. Clubs that have a lower loft produce a lower launch angle while traveling a longer distance, while clubs that have a higher loft are meant to have a higher launch and not travel as far. The loft of a club is by far the most important factor in determining launch angle. What determines launch angle beyond what club a player is using? A, higher ball speeds will produce a higher launch if everything else is equal, meaning that equipment stays the same. Of course, that's not the case for better players. They're using stiffer shafts a lot of times and lower lofts in the case of a driver. But also there's something called dynamic loft which is the amount of loft on the club face at impact. So you can hit a pitching wedge that is naturally 46 degrees at address, but if your hands are way out in front of the ball, you may have turned that club into a 42 degree club. That will lower the launch angle. So there's no one answer to knowing what launch angle someone should be at, but we do have some clues. The average male amateur hits a driver with 12.6 degrees of launch. The average LPGA Tour player, which is more relatable to the average golfer, hits a driver with 13.2 degrees of launch. If you are a slower swing speed than average, you should be playing a higher lofted driver and or a shaft with more flex, so your launch will be higher because of that. And the opposite is true as well. The faster you swing, Generally, you will want slightly less loft and a stiffer shaft, which drives launch down. The PGA Tour average is about 11 degrees of launch. So if you are a faster swing speed player and your launch is 16 degrees, let's say, 
that is a red flag. It could be an equipment red flag, or it could be a sign that you are adding loft with your swing, which could be a sign that you are hanging too far back on your trail side and flipping the club upwards. Poor contact is also a big indicator of launch being too high. Most golfers launch the ball too high, not too low. And that is really mainly because of poor contact, especially when you're talking about irons. A great player hits the ball first and then the ground, and launch angle really tells a story there. So the way it works is that your launch angle will be higher with your driver than it will be with your fairway woods, even though you have less loft on your driver. Why is that the case? You hit a driver from a tee in fairway woods, even if they are teed up, the ball is near the ground. That changes the launch. But from that point forward, the shorter the club with the higher loft, the higher the launch angle. Again, this is really a consistency issue. Ideally, you want to be within, I would say, two degrees with each shot. I'll give you another example from from my own practice. So This is with a 52-degree gap wedge. I hit four shots, and the launches were 40.8 degrees, 42.3 degrees, 39.1, and 41.6. The two highest launches of that group went the shortest distance of the four, and I felt more comfortable with the swings I made on the two lower launching shots. And I know from experience in my practice that I like to launch my gap wedge around 40 degrees. That's when I feel I'm making clean contact and the ball is going to go the distance I like to see with my gap wedge, which is, which is around 105 yards. You will see this in your own game with the graph golf ball. And you will almost always see that shots you miss hit, the launch angle is a little higher than your good shots. And one last clip for you here. This is from Graph Golf CEO Aaron Shapiro explaining where the Graph Golf name comes from. One of the aspects that, that really drew me to Graph, and I think a lot of people to Graph, is where the name comes from. I, I, I can't tell you how often I hear, what, is, what does G-R-A-F-F mean? What, where, where does that come from? But it really kind of sits at the core of you know, what the company stands for. And it really is a, a special story. And I was hoping that you would kind of share where the name comes from. Yeah, it, it is a huge part of what we think about and, and how we hold ourselves every day. And so graph to the outsider might sound like graph, uh, G-R-A-P-H, graphing analytics maybe, or something to do with that. Uh, internally, it means so much more. Graph is short for Jim Margraf, and he was the head football coach here uh, at Johns Hopkins, and he unexpectedly passed away in 2019. And he was a, a very special person to myself, to Patrick, to Mike, to so many individuals throughout Johns Hopkins, throughout Baltimore. He was really the one that pushed me to start this company. And he means so much. He, he taught me so much in the short time that I, I had with him every single day it pushes us to hold ourselves to, to a higher standard and, and know that we're building this for so many people out there and, and that we're able to do anything to give a little bit back to Coach Margraf and, and enable his legacy to, to continue on. It, it just means the world to us. And I asked PK the same question, but I have to imagine that if you were here, you know, uh, viewing the, this company and the evolution of it, you would have to be incredibly proud of what 
you know, every, everybody has done. And especially his, uh, his former players. I'm, I'm sure you, you think about that on, on, a, on a daily basis. I, I certainly hope he would be. And again, there's countless lessons that he taught me in, in the short time that I had with him. And I just, I always try to think about how would, how would coach Margreff uh, react to this situation? He, he did such an incredible job of living in the moment and understanding at a high level that whatever was going on there, there was light at the end of the tunnel. No win is too big and, and no losses is the end of the world. And he taught us so much. And yeah, I would hope he, he would be proud of what we've accomplished, but I can't wait uh, to, to show everybody what else we're building here and, and um, what we're doing for Coach Margaret. I wanted to end here looking forward to the second season of the podcast and some of the exciting plans that we have on tap. Uh, you know, some of the things that really make me excited are, you know, the opportunity to talk to a club rep about how they deal with PGA tour professionals and how they apply analytics to, to that person's game. There's a high ceiling for what we can accomplish and what we can explore in analytics because we haven't quite uh, really got there to that point where we've really been able to explore it uh, like, like some other people have, but I think we, we have that opportunity coming up now. Uh, what, what are you excited for kind of looking forward to the second season? Well, I think uh, just, just as a start, I think that's a fantastic idea. Um, I, I, I see this product um, and this, you know, methodology that we're representing having huge, huge reach into the world of, um, you know, professional golf instruction. I think that this is, you know, it's, it's a no brainer, um, for clubs that can't afford a track man or don't necessarily want a track man, um, don't want to purchase multiple launch monitors. Maybe, you know, they have their reasons who knows it's, it's one more option. It's a, it's a more accessible option. It's a more affordable option. It's um, a smaller option if that, if that plays. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's a big one. I, I think that probably what I'm most excited for, for season two, um, I think season one was what it had to be. And, and what I mean by that, and I don't mean that as a, a negative at all. I, I mean that we, within our means, we, we accomplished all we probably could have in the topics that we covered for season one. Um, and that's because we were, we had to branch outside of our company, you know, saving the behind the ball series quite a bit because so many things with what we we're developing here were either in limbo or uh, pending some kind of approval or patent pending in, in some areas, you know, uh, things that we just could not discuss, could not show. Um, 2022 is going to be completely different. It's, it's going to be so different in that um, we're going to launch for one thing. Um, it, that's going to change everything in terms of the conversations that people have about us, that, that we have about ourselves. Um, but we're going to be able to show more and therefore discuss more. We're also going to learn things as we start to put the tech into use and as other people and pros and collaborators and instructors, course pros start to put the product into use and come to us and say like, Hey, I, I want to do this, you know, but those are the things that I'm excited for. Um, because, you know, people are going to have ideas for how they want to apply this tech. Um, it's not just about our ideas. You know, some people are going to come to us with partnership ideas and, 
we're going to be talking about them on the pod. I mean, and, and, you know, this is more of a pipe dream kind of idea, but what if this gets, what if a pro gets their hands on this next year and, and takes a liking to it? What if they, what if they want to talk to Sean, Sean Fairholm? You know, what if they want to pick your brain? Things like that. I mean, I, I just generally feel that 2022 uh, is going to involve so much more um, of the product itself being shown, experienced, used, developed, ex- expanded, um, that we're going to have a lot more to cover on the pod uh, in, in the way of the actual physical product and uh, platform. So that's probably what's, you know, I have to always kind of tell myself to be patient, but I'm in, in, in honesty, I'm, I'm kind of chomping at the bit uh, for when we can start sharing that stuff and talking about it. Absolutely. And for any tour pros out there, you have a standing invitation to the Graph Golf Podcast whenever you would like it. You're absolutely welcome to come on and discuss your own game and uh, and the product as well. So I, I would absolutely be looking forward to that. Rowan, thank you so much for hopping on here for, for a few minutes. Uh, really looking forward to, uh, to what we have in store here for season two. Absolutely. Me as well. So thanks for having me on again, Sean. Always a pleasure. 